0: If you like what you hear today, we encourage you to share this with your friends or family. Enjoy. We're going to go ahead and get in, in just a moment to continue in the series, um, Why Am I Running? I mean, we've been in for a couple of weeks now. Um, but there's just really this sense inside of me like it, it would feel weird, it would feel uncomfortable, it would feel remiss um, if we didn't start off by addressing kind of the elephant in the room. Um, if you're anything like me, when you look at what's been going on uh, in our nation, really in our own backyard here in North Carolina, uh, it's been heartbreaking. I've um, been losing a lot of sleep lately. Um, I find myself more stressed than I than I usually am. Um, and, and I don't entirely know why. Like, I know God is in control, but every now and then there are just certain things that pop up in the news, on my social media feed that just really stress me out and um, if you're anything like me, then you've been kind of bothered by this as well. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I want to go ahead and, and kind of catch you up to speed really quick. Uh, just three weeks ago here in the great state of North Carolina, uh, legislation uh, has been trying to push through a bill that I think will actually be a mark on our generation um, that will be remembered for decades to come. I don't know if you know this or not, but but North Carolina legislation is trying its best to ban participation trophies across the entire state. And uh, (laughs) uh, first of all, let me give you permission to unclench. It's okay. (laughs) But how many of you have seen this headline? Uh, This came out, like I said, about three, four weeks ago. Anybody see this? Nobody has seen this. Okay, one one person. North Carolina lawmakers introduce a bill to ban participation trophies for kids. That means that for all statewide sports uh, leagues and stuff like that, state-run sports leagues, they're going to ban participation trophies. Now, here's what I want everybody to do, whether you're here in the room or whether you're watching online. uh, I want everyone uh, to do a round of applause. How many of you think this is a good idea? Yeah, that's... It's about what I expected. Uh, it's a lot of heavy-handed dads uh, who I think would be more okay if their kid brought home a new COVID variant than a participation trophy. <laughs> um, I, here's the thing, we as a people and we as a society, uh, we have no problem with being the judge of who does or doesn't deserve an award, right? Uh, the problem with participation trophies and the thing that a lot of us struggle with is the idea that you just get something for showing up. Like that doesn't feel Right, it doesn't feel fair till it happens to us. (laughs) Right? Like, I have a very love hate relationship with filing taxes every year. Uh, When I owe money, I hate it. When I get money back, I love it. And I know this isn't a perfect example, right? Because uh, we get the money that we've really had coming to us all year long, but I just want you to indulge me for just a second and realize all of us kind of have this feeling inside of us that there's something that we deserve. And simply put, the reason for that is because at the end of the day, a lot of us believe that we're good people. Like we try our best, we show up every day to, to do the best that we can, to live life the best way that we can. And so in return, we feel like maybe there's something that I should get for this. I think sometimes we even project this onto the gospel and we start to think, well, yes, of course, Jesus loves me. (laughs) Of course, Jesus has forgiven me. Of course, I deserve that grace every now and then at least, maybe not every day, but at least on some days, Like, I want God to look down and say, hey, he's crushing it. She's doing a great job. But the fact of the matter is, is that the reason why so many people run away from God and run away from the gospel is because the gospel actually teaches that we, we don't deserve the grace of God. The gospel teaches that we're not good people. I'll do you one even, even worse than that. It doesn't teach that we're bad people. The gospel teaches that we are dead people incapable of helping ourselves, incapable of being the type of people who can provide everything for ourselves that we think we need. It plays against our normal sensibilities and our, our ideas of independency. The idea that, oh, well, if I just work hard enough, uh, if, I, if I try hard enough, then maybe I will be a good person who deserves good things. And that's, that's not what the Bible says teaches. As a matter of fact, we could run down the list. There's a couple of different verses. Romans 6.23 uh, teaches that the wages of sin is death. So uh, not only uh, does it say that you're not a good person, but it says if you do deserve anything, the thing you deserve for your sin is death. A few weeks ago, Chase looked at the story of the prodigal son and what happens? The prodigal son comes home and the dad says, what? Your son, I'm sorry, your brother was dead. Colossians 2.13 says that you were dead because of your sin. One of the most offensive passages in the Bible, uh, it's actually a statement that Jesus himself makes in John 15, where he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing? Like I could surely do something, <laughs> All right? There are those who who find themselves running away from the gospel. But if you're in here and you're one of the people who say that you've embraced the gospel, even for for some some of us who have uh, been following Jesus for a really long time, it's really easy to believe, well, like nothing apart from Jesus. Like we would never say it. But if we were honest, there's probably some of us who think somewhere in our heart, like if God wasn't around for 24 hours, I think I could make it through a day. Like Maybe. Right? We live with this idea uh, that it's our alarm clock that wakes us up in the morning and not the God who pours out his grace on us. And then when that alarm clock doesn't go off and we wake up late, we hop in the car and we start speeding to work while texting and driving. And then we get there and we're like, man, I'm such a great multitasker. It's like, no, <laughs> there was heavily, heavenly intervention <laughs> keeping you safe while you were on the road, getting from point A to point B. See, we're so quick to think that we, are capable of doing or producing some good on our own, but the gospel actually teaches the opposite. The gospel teaches that we are heavily dependent on the grace of God and the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul writes that not everybody is gonna uh, accept that message very well. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says this, says the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. Paul makes two clear distinctions here. He says that they have those who who accept the power of God uh, as reflected by what Jesus went through on the cross and the fact that he resurrected. And then there are people who think that the cross is just foolishness. And we hear this all the time, right? We hear people who would say things such as, uh, well, how, like, how is that justifiable? Like God killed his son. That just sounds like murder. Why would a loving God, how would a good God do this, right? Either that or they think, uh, well, if somebody did die on a cross, what does that have to do with me? Like, I don't need someone to die on a cross to save me. I can make things happen for myself, and then maybe there's a question that even if you are a follower of Jesus, you've never really thought about or never really tried to process before. Or maybe you've had this thought and it's freaked you out a little bit because you can't really get to a rude answer. But the question is, is like, how does, how does some Middle Eastern guy dying on a cross 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me here today? And when we can't make sense of this, we run away from the gospel because we think it's foolishness. We doubt the character of God. We doubt his goodness, we doubt his love, we doubt his presence in our lives. But what I actually want us to do is I want us to take a look at the entire story. I think in order for us to understand where we are now, we have to understand first how we got here. And so uh, I'm gonna do something that Chase has been doing the past couple of weeks. We're gonna go back to Genesis and and this is a necessity. We're gonna take a look at a different perspective from it uh, because if not, we're not gonna understand why is it that Jesus had to endure the cross. So let's go ahead, let's go ahead and hop into it. Uh, The first thing is that God, he creates the entire world and it's perfect. Like it is the definition of perfection. Let me paint a picture for you of just how perfect it is, okay? The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve, that they walked in the garden with God, naked in the cool breeze of the day, okay? Now, if this is you, This is not the time to amen, but I don't know if you've ever walked outside naked when there was a nice breeze, okay? This is perfection. (laughs) And even if you've tried this in your backyard before, your prayer is that nobody is walking their dog and looking through the cracks of your fence (laughs) to see you, okay? This is not what they experienced. They walked through and not only were they not alone, God was there and they didn't feel shame. That is the perfect unity that they experienced with God. And so what happens? God tells them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he tells them, if you do, you will surely die. Okay. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine you've never read the Bible before. Imagine you've never heard the story of Adam and Eve. You've never heard the story of the garden. And you just start from page one and you start reading. And you see that God tells them, don't eat of this fruit or you will die. And somehow you make it to chapter four and they're still alive. This raises a question. This is when the doubts start rising up. Did God tell the truth? Did God lie? He said that they would die, but but here they are. They've lived long enough to see chapter four. And it's an illusion that starts right here that so many of us buy into today. It's the idea of how can I be dead when I'm walking around and breathing? How can I be so depraved? How can I be not a good person? Look at the life I've built for myself. Look at for the ways that that I've been uh, blessed through various means. Look at what I have accomplished on my own, God. And you wanna tell me I'm dead? That's foolishness. But really, What we're actually doing is it's what Adam and Eve do in this very situation. You see, once they they recognize uh, their nakedness, let's look at Genesis 3, 7. It says, at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So at the first sign of any sort of insufficiency within themselves, what do they do? They try to cover up that insufficiency. They try to find something on their own to say, no, what are you talking, naked? news, no, naked. I'm fine. Look at these fig leaves. They're working for me. And we start believing the lie that we can provide something for ourselves. But instead, God in his good grace actually provides it for them. This is the first instance of anyone running from God. They hide because now they feel this sense of shame. And when God finds them in the garden, he does two things. The first thing is in uh, Genesis 3, 14 through 19, uh, he, he runs down to them the list of consequences because sin always has consequences. But right after telling them about those consequences, you know what he does? Genesis three 21. let's check this out. It says, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. That means immediately God saw Adam and Eve's attempt to cover up their shame. And he said, that's not good enough. I'm going to kill an animal to provide something in order to clothe clothe you. This is the God that we serve. The first death the world had ever seen was God uh, committing a sacrifice in order to cover for the mistakes and the sins of his people. So immediately he goes into action mode To help us in our deficiencies. But now the relationship is broken. So the Bible goes on, and we see that brokenness play out in so many different ways. And God, because he desires perfect unity with his people, what he does is he, he institutes a plan. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with the nation of Israel, the seed of Abraham, and they will be the ones, they will be the recipients of that unity again. I'm going to provide a way that they will show the rest of the world what life can actually look like if you walk in unity with me. So he creates this covenant with the, with the Israelites and they blow it to because they're human and they make mistakes. Now, because of their brokenness and because of their sin, they don't have that uh, uh, uninhibited access to God. So what does he do? He puts another system in place. And he institutes the idea of sacrifices. Now, this is where a lot of people get really uncomfortable because they think of the, how barbaric the Old Testament is. Why would a loving God call for so much bloodshed? Why why on earth would God have an animal be killed to atone for my sins or to make up for my sins or to forgive my sins? And and I actually think it's the right question, but it's the wrong tone. I'm going to tell you what I mean in just a moment. The book of Leviticus, it it gets a little bit of a bad rap. Um, If you've ever tried a Bible in a Year reading plan, this is usually when you tap out, uh, because there's a bunch of stuff in there that unless you are a first century Jewish person, it just kind of flies right over your head. But right in the middle of Leviticus uh, is Leviticus chapter 16. And I genuinely think it is one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible, but it's also one of the most uh, necessary to help us understand the grand scheme narrative that the Bible is writing and just how God works to have communion with his people again. In Leviticus chapter 16, we get news about the Day of Atonement. Uh, If you have an iPhone, you can go ahead and open up your calendar. And if you scroll down to September 25th, you're going to see Yom Kippur. This is the day of atonement. Like Jews still celebrate this in their culture today. Um, But the entire idea of this was, this was the one day a year that anyone was allowed to enter into the presence of God. Uh, There was a high priest and this high priest would be given access to go into this room of a tent that they had called a tabernacle. And in this room called the Holy of Holies, they could actually be in the presence of God. Again, this is the first time since the garden that this has happened. However, in order for that to happen, guess what? There had to be a sacrifice. So the high priest would, um, first thing he would have to do is he would have to kill an ox. When he killed the ox, uh, this was for uh, the cleansing of himself. It was so that he would be deemed as holy so that he could enter into this space. And then he would kill a lamb and that lamb would be for the forgiveness of the sins of all the people. So now that they are clean, they are purified and their sins have been forgiven, now he can enter into the space. But what I love about this is that there's a, there's a story in Leviticus 16 uh, verses 20 through 22. And it talks about what the high priest would have to do with two goats. Okay. He'd have to do this with two goats. He grabs two, he puts them in front of him. And uh, he has to cast lots, okay? This is really interesting. Uh, We don't fully know what casting lots was. Like the closest we can kind of dream up is like rolling dice a little bit, but it was some way uh, that, that God would intervene and help the high priest make a decision. So he would, he would pick these two goats and then one would be designated for the sacrifice and the other one would be designated uh, as the scapegoat. This is a word you may have heard before. We're gonna talk about what it means in just a minute, okay? So I wanna go ahead and read this. This is Leviticus 16, 20 through 22. It says, when Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. This is the scapegoat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebelliousness of the israelites all their sins and put them on the goat's head if you think the like sacrificial system is weird this feels a little weird doesn't it <laughs> but that goat it doesn't die that's not the one that's going to get killed this is what happens he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. So what's happening here? He has two goats. One of them is gonna be killed for a sacrifice, but the other one he goes, he, he almost prays over that goat, puts all the sins of the people and then sends it away. Now I want you to imagine you're in the Israelite camp when this happens, right? You're there and I just imagine they're all kind of standing back and they see this goat kind of start moving away and as it crests over a hill and disappears in the distance, the thought is, is oh my gosh, that's my sin. Like my sin has been placed upon this living thing. And now it's, it's not on me anymore. That guilt is not on me anymore. It's been placed on something else. And now it's going far, far away and I can't even see it anymore. It's been separated from me as far as I could possibly go. Keep that in mind. But then there's a second goat. And this one is slaughtered. And while it's a gruesome, disgusting process, I think there comes a moment when the people in the Israelite camp look at that goat and they go, oh my gosh, that goat is receiving the punishment that I should have gotten. I mentioned earlier, I think the question about sacrifice, like why would a God, why would a loving good God kill an animal so that we could have forgiveness of sins? I said it's the right question, but it's the wrong tone the right tone is why on earth would a loving God choose to put this punishment on something other than the one who deserves it? Why in the world, when I deserve to die for my sin, would God instead give me something to use as a symbol of the punishment that should have been put on me? He should have wiped me out. I should have been done for. But instead in his grace, he's chosen something else to pour that out on. Listen, a lot of times we think that sacrifices and stuff like that in the Bible are some sort of cosmic injustice, they're not. It's heavenly grace being poured out in a way that we could never imagine. And it's a grace that's designed not to be taken for granted. That when we look at what God has, how he has made a substitution for what we deserve, man, that should bring us to tears. That should bring us to to a life of service and obedience to God. And the perfect example of this comes later on in the book in a man named Jesus. Maybe you've asked before, "Well, how come we don't do sacrifices anymore? How come we don't have to go out and kill our goats or our pets and try to uh, uh, cover for our sins with God anymore? It's because there's someone who came to put an end to it. And his name was Jesus. I think it's very common to hear the truth that God died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. You come to church and you probably hear it every week. And after a while, it kind of becomes white noise to us. And I think it's very easy for us to forget just what was done for us and in our place. So I'm gonna take a moment and I just kind of wanna run through what exactly happened to Jesus and how he was the perfect embodiment of all the stuff that we see in Genesis and Leviticus and the things that our soul desperately needs. A lot of us could probably close our eyes and imagine Jesus on the cross, but I want us to go back a little bit. Um, I want us to think about the garden of Gethsemane. If you don't know what that is, um, Basically, Jesus, he sits down for the Last Supper. It's a very famous photo. of. It's not a photo, it's a painting, you know what I mean? (laughs) There weren't people back there with their iPhones out. But he sits down with his disciples and and he's telling them about the road that's ahead. And it has him in such deep anguish that he goes into this garden to pray. And when he gets there, the Bible tells us that he's actually so overwhelmed uh, with the stress of all of the sin of the world being placed upon him, that he, he experienced something called hematidrosis. Um, this actually is, it still happens today, believe it or not, it happens a lot of times to prisoners who are on death row or who are, people who are just in really uh, dire life and death situations. But uh, essentially you sweat because of the nervousness and after a while you sweat all of the, the liquid out. And so uh, your, blood, um, your blood vessels, they start to swell up to where they get close to the surface of the skin and then they burst. So then you start sweating blood instead. As you can imagine, this process would probably wipe any normal person out, but this was just the beginning of the road for Jesus. After this, the Roman guards, they come and they take him and they cuff him and they bring him to a trial. And at this trial, he undergoes some of the worst verbal abuse that anyone could ever imagine. It's during this trial that the very people that he came to die for and the very people that he came to forgive, uh, uh, they yell obscenities at him. They yell that they want to crucify him. They yell that this man doesn't deserve to live anymore. And even despite all of that, Jesus, he sits and remains silent, ready for whatever road comes ahead. It's at that moment, that Jesus is taken away and a crown of thorns is placed on his head. This crown would have been made up of thorns that are about six to eight inches long. And when they would put it on his head, they didn't just rest it, they pressed it down. So those thorns would dig deep into his, his brow and his forehead. So just imagine he's already been sweating blood and now there's more dripping from his face. And as we start to see this grim picture I want you to ask the question, why would a loving God do that to his son? After that, Jesus is taken to a place where he's going to be beaten. Uh, He receives uh, 39 lashes across his back. And they stopped at 39 because they believed that 40 would kill a man. But but through the course of that 39, they used uh, various different whips, one of which the most violent was called the cat of nine tails. This leather strap that that broke off into nine different smaller leather straps uh, would contain bits of metal and rock and glass. Uh, So any time that he would be hit with it, it would latch onto his skin and take flesh with it. There are even some accounts of some people getting caught with this in the face and it plucking out an eye. It's a gruesome, brutal scene, but it's just the beginning of it. It's after all this that they introduced the cross. The way this works is one of the beams of the cross would have been placed against Jesus's lacerated back. And every time that he would go to take a step, his weak body would give out and he would hit the ground and dirt and dust would kick up into those wounds, literally adding salt to the wounds. Again, we have all these pictures, we have all these different ways that we could imagine Jesus carrying the cross to Calvary. But, but I want to I paint a picture for you really quick that that beam that he would have been carrying was, was uh, estimated to be around 66 pounds. And he had to carry it for 1.25 miles after already having been beaten within an inch of his life. Eventually he'd make it up to the hill where he was going and there wasn't any rest there. The cross laid down the ground. He placed Jesus on top of it and they would grab these six-inch nails to drive into his hands and into his feet. Before I go any further, I just want you to think, why in the world would a loving God do this to his son? A lot of times when we see pictures of the nails and Jesus hanging on the cross, they're going through the palm of his hand. Uh, That's actually not the way that the Romans would have done it. They would have sent it right below the wrist. Uh, And the reason for this is so that it made it harder for him to support his body. If it was on his hands, that would have made it easy. So they drove him through his wrist so that he would struggle even more. Those same six inch nails, they placed his feet one on top of the other and drove them through his ankles. Now that he's pinned to the cross, he raised him into place. And as the cross settled into place, his body would slide against the wood and there would be uh, splinters that go into the wounds that are already on his back. The amount of sheer will that it took to remain in that position is more than any of us could ever even think about bearing add on top of this, the fact that every time uh, Jesus was uh, hanging low, his lungs would start to collapse. and So in order to get a breath, he would have to use his wrists and push up and then he would settle back down. And every time that he did this, his muscles were getting weaker and weaker until eventually they all ruptured. Somehow after all of this, he wasn't dead yet. So the Roman guards, they grabbed these spears and they stabbed him in his side where any remaining blood and water would start to flow out of his body to try to finish the job. And from there, he was moved and laid into a tomb. It's a graphic site that a lot of us can't imagine. We have no modern day frame of reference for this. And the question again comes up of why would a loving God put this on his son? It's because this God loves you so much that he wanted to give us one eternal lamb who would be sacrificed for us forever. This God loved you so much that he wanted to pick one scapegoat who all of the sins of all of the people would go on and as we would watch it in the distance and say, there goes my sin. I don't have to carry that anymore. Jesus represents a goat who was slaughtered so that when we see Jesus up on the cross, we think for ourselves, man, that should have been me. I deserve that. Jesus didn't deserve that. God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to take on what he didn't deserve so that we could have the life that we don't deserve. That's the story of the cross. It's not an injustice, it's grace. It's God placing upon himself something that we Deserve The Bible puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Romans 5, one through two says the same thing. It says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of, what are those words? undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We get to look forward to sharing God's glory. We don't have to run anymore. Let me change that. We run, but it's in a different direction now. We're not running away from God. We're running into the arms of a loving God who says, I love you so much that I put on me the punishment that you deserved. When we look at the cross of Jesus and when we look at the holiness of God, it should offend us. It should remind us that we're not good, that we're dead should be a reminder, a healthy reminder to us that however good you think you are, you're not. And however good you think God is, he's greater. That is why Jesus gave us the cross. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go back into a time of worship here. And I just wanna let you know, um, this doesn't mean that the service is over it means that this is an opportunity for us to respond. Because we hear this story of Jesus on the cross, you say, okay, God, if you did all that for me, well, then what should I do in return? How should I respond to this? And Romans 12:1 tells us, Romans says, therefore, we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? It means every day I get up and not out of obligation, but out of joy, I get to pour out everything that's in me for Jesus the way that he poured out everything in him for us. So that may look a couple of different ways. We're gonna sing a couple of songs here together in just a moment. And so maybe for you, giving him that worship looks like singing at the top of your lungs and not letting, not holding back. Maybe for you, that means that when you walk out of these doors today or when you turn off the live stream, you recognize, man, there's something in my life that I need to offer to Christ to lay down, to let go of my own way, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus so that I can receive the life that he died to give me. And maybe for some of you, it means that you don't have to run anymore. You're not running away from God, but instead you're running to him. Maybe for so long, you've been offended by the message of the gospel because you thought, I got this. I don't need any help. Hey, Jesus, I heard you died on the cross. Thanks, but no thanks. But today is the day where I think God is trying to get your attention and where you actually have to say, listen, I'm tired of running in the wrong direction. I want to receive the grace and the gift that Jesus died so I could have. If you're watching at any of our campuses, I wanna encourage you right now, listen, this is not the time uh, to head out and try to grab your kids early or anything. Listen, how much of a failure would it be if we had an opportunity to respond to the, the grace of God and we said, nah, I got somewhere to be right now. And listen, if I could just throw this in there as well as a student ministry guy who who works with middle schoolers. Listen, don't pass up this moment that God may have for you, but also don't go pull your kids away early from whatever God may be doing with them where they are. Let's all slow down, reflect on the gift and run into the arms of a father who loves us. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for you. We're grateful that you gave us God, something that we never had a right to ask for. God, you have blessed us with something that we do not deserve. Father, as we look across the grand narrative of scripture, as we look across this creation that you've placed in front of us, what we see is how even when we blew it, time after time after time, and again, and again, and again, God, you make a provision. You make a way. In your great love and your great mercy, God, you don't give us what we deserve. You've always made a way for something else to take that onto its shoulders. And Father, we thank you that you love us enough to place that burden on yourself. You sent your Son Jesus to die for us in our place so we could experience freedom and truth and love and a grace that never ends. Father, let this be our heart's cry. We love you. We lay it all out for you. Be glorified by our worship. It's in your name we pray, amen.